0: Welcome to Do Hard Things with The Revolution. Do you want to rise above mediocrity and live your life sold out for the glory of God? Do you want to do hard things, make your life count, and use your teen years for Christ? Here at The Revolution, we know that navigating life as a Christian teen can be tough. Our hope with this podcast is to share biblical truth and provide real, honest, and relatable answers to your hardest questions. So with that in mind, let's dive right into the latest episode of Do Hard Things with the Revolution. Hey friends, welcome back to Do Hard Things with the Revolution. I'm your host, Sarah Barrett, and today I want to go back to when I was about 16 years old. Being the book nerd that I am, this story is going to begin with surprise, surprise, a book, a little blue book specifically titled When God Writes Your Love Story. Now, being the romantic that I was, this was not the first relationships book that I'd read, but I would say that this was one of the most impactful. I laughed my head off at parts. I squirmed a bit the other parts when conviction hit just a little too close, and I was truly inspired and challenged to give the pen of my at-the-moment, non-existent love story to God. I've picked up this book since then, and there are still parts that come back to me that I've always remembered and thought about. It, like few other books, didn't just present a list of do this, don't do that, and God will give you a spouse, but it actually showed how incredibly beautiful it is to seek God and His design for marriage and relationships, and that His design is the most joyful, most life-giving way, and that He Himself, not marriage, is the ultimate goal. The authors of this book are, you guessed it, Eric and Leslie Ludy, and I am so excited to bring them both onto the podcast today to help us unpack how to live out true biblical masculinity and femininity. So for today's episode, I'm chatting with Eric about biblical manhood, and in the next episode, part two, I'll be talking to Leslie about godly femininity. Now girls, don't click off here because I promise this episode is going to be packed with encouragement and vision that you won't want to miss on what a godly man looks like and how to know when you found one. And guys, don't skip out on the next episode either if you want to know what a true godly woman looks like. But preamble over, I'm just so excited about these episodes. And Eric, thank you so very much for joining me today.
1: Oh, it's a real joy to be with you, Sarah. It's taken us a while to make this all happen. And uh, so I'm just thrilled (laughs) to finally be doing it. And uh, it's just neat to, uh, you know, I've done so many interviews on the topic of even when God wrote your love story, to, to, but it's uh-huh. so many years back when we released that. That was, I think, 1998. <laughs> oh, and wow. so it's, it's just sort of fun to hear your description of it and the impact it had. And it's sort of a reminiscing process for me, uh, even in hearing that. So thanks for that introduction. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. And I did not realize actually that it was published in 1998. I was born in 1999. So it's actually older than me, which is really crazy to see <laughs> how God has used it for so many years that I read it, even though it was published even before I was born. That's amazing.
1: That is amazing. It makes me feel rather old. So thank you for
0: that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was not <laughs> the intention. <laughs> Uh, But one thing that I really love about the ministry that you and Leslie do is that you both talk about things that not a lot of people do. You are one of the few people I know who talk about and focus on godly manhood. I love your website tagline, Godly Gritty Masculinity, and I feel like that is just so important because godly men are so rare In our society, even amongst um, our Christian culture. And we can really see the lack of godly men, what impact that has had on the home, the family, the church, the culture. And so, my desire with this podcast episode is really to pick your brain on what it means and looks like to be a truly godly man and to give the young men in our audience a challenge and a vision for true masculinity. And also to help the young women, just give some of them them advice and encouragement to know how to spot a truly godly man and how to support and pray for and encourage our brothers in Christ. Hmm. Um, so we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, what is your opinion on why is there such a lack of godly men in our culture?
1: Well, it's an important question that I think uh, goes back to Just like most deterioration points, it comes back to the place God plays in a culture. And because that demonstrates Mm, where he plays, what role he's playing in an individual soul or the individual souls that make up that nation or that culture. And I think when God moves out of center, there are certain things that just begin to fray because they are fragile in their nature and they must be tended sort of like a fire. And when that fire begins to go out, it's hard to get it going again if it's actually gone out. And in a culture Mm -hmm. like we're experiencing, when you lose godly manhood, you also lose godly marriage. And when you lose godly manhood and therefore godly marriage, you lose godly families. And then when you lose godly manhood, Mm -hmm. then marriage, then families, you lose godly churches. And when that witness of Christ Mm -hmm. in a culture begins to uh, evaporate, you get a situation that's not altogether dissimilar from what we're seeing today, which is what you're bringing up to start with. And it's not that we don't have the church today. It's that the church lacks its strength. It lacks its nobility, its power, its muscle. And I think many of us, when we read the scriptures, we see a discrepancy between what we what we see around us and what it says on those pages. And it's hard because we're, is the problem with me? Am I, should I not expect more uh, out of this thing called Christianity? But what you're bringing up is the question, mm-hmm. what's happened to all the godly men? And it's not that they're not there. Yeah. And I think that would be an, a, a, a terrible thing to make a declaration that there are no godly yes. men out there. There are. And, uh, But I've likened it to, like, I live in Colorado, and up the road here, about 45 minutes, we have a a town called Estes Park, and in Estes Park, Colorado, uh, we have all sorts of elk, and they're just a majestic uh, creature, and I love seeing them, and all tourists love seeing them, too, they'll pull off to the side of the road and just watch them, and you know, elk really do exist. And you might not see them everywhere, but they're there. And when you do see one, it it Mm -hmm. makes a spectacle. And I'd say godly manhood is sort of like that. But I'd also say one more thing, and that is that there used to be elk that were far greater than what we have today up in Estes Park. Like when I've studied the Irish elk, Irish elk were 10 Mm -hmm. foot at the brow. Their rack of antlers sprawled 12 feet in width and went up another five feet. That was 15 feet of massiveness. And I would say that's what we're missing. It's not that we don't have manhood in the church. It's that we're lacking whatever that is that truly startles the culture in which that man strolls. And I think that's what we all crave. Maybe I shouldn't say we all, but like I can tell just in this interview topic, the way that you've prepped for it, the way that you talked about what you desired, Sarah, you desire it. And you're not the only one. There's a whole bunch of us out there that are craving the return of strength to the church of Jesus Christ. And we know that yes. one of the key corridors of that is man- manliness or masculinity. That's a house for this strength, and God intended it to be that way. And so when manhood loses its its passion or its vision or its its makeup, then things begin to deteriorate. like I said, marriage, then family, then the church, then ultimately the culture. So one of the things I, I was I'm preparing a, a series for my Daily Thunder podcast, uh, and I'm always in I'm always uh, studying some rather odd things. right now, it's the history of the FBI, which is sort of an odd thing to uh, get into. Oh. But going back to early 1900s, you know, in the time of World War I, uh, when I was studying the church and some of what the church was seeing as the need for their time period, and ironically – it was the lack of manhood and so it's just interesting to see and what they said that they craved is something called muscular christianity and what's weird is i've used that exact phrase and so i think it's <laughs> oftentimes that there are seasons where the church will grow weak and then there is a renewal or a reviving that can take place mm-hmm. and world war 1 mm-hmm. was part of that reviving of masculinity if you will and then we had another deterioration mm-hmm. between world war 1 and world war 2 and then and you see World War II reviving something where it's like men have to choose. Hmm. Am I am I going to sit on my thumbs or am I going to rise up and be a man? And th- those are very interesting dynamics that play in times of difficulty. And I think right now, because of the ease, we have been lulled to sleep.
0: Mm. That's fascinating. And I, I really think you did hit the nail on the head there. Uh, as a brief side note, I love that you brought up the Irish elk, Because that sermon was one of the first ones that I listened to from you, actually, after I read um, When God Writes Your Love Story. And I think it will especially strike a chord with all of our listeners because let me just say – that message spread like wildfire through an entire community Mm. of teenagers uh, among the revolution that they were all inspiring each other to become Irish Elks. So that had a massive impact upon our community here. And I love that you brought that out.
1: Well, that's so neat. That's encouraging to hear. I really appreciate you sharing that. It's interesting because Isaiah 3 uh, talks about a judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem and Judah uh, specifically. And it's, you know, as you get into Isaiah, you re- realize that there's judgment coming. That uh, and But the first phase of judgment on the nation wasn't disease, wasn't famine. Uh, it was actually the removal of manhood. Oh, really? And hmm. and so I think that's another interesting thing not that that's an encouraging thing for any of us to ponder <laughs> here but it's also I think a signal an advanced signal from God to say wake up and you know because there are further statements of you know things that can happen in our life just like in our individual lives mm-hmm. there are early sensors that can go off to say hey wake up uh, if you continue to go in this direction then the disease and the famine really do come the judgment increases But I do think, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, in verse uh, 5 of of Isaiah chapter 3, it says, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. And in in verse 4, right before this is, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. Why? Because the men have been removed uh, from the culture. And so I think, The significance of what you're bringing up and asking questions about is not a small thing. When we begin to see the absence of manhood, it should be a signal and that sensor should be going off in us saying, "Eh, eh, eh, we need to do something about this. This is not not fitting the church of Jesus Christ, and it leads to disaster in in the world around us too.
0: Absolutely. And I, I like that you brought out, it's almost like a domino effect that, like you said, um, manhood, then marriage, then churches and culture. And so as I've really thought about this and pondered it myself, I feel like that is one of the main reasons why there is, I feel such a strong spiritual attack against Christian men to cause Mm -hmm. them to, you know, be weaker or to compromise or just such a targeted attack, even more so than against, um, godly women i would say there's such an attack against godly men have you have you felt that have you seen that
1: Oh, oh yeah uh it is a very very significant thing if a man if if the enemy the, the flesh is a wonderful um hindrance to every man to start with and you know yeah the, the enemy has has limited resource and most of us don't think about it uh that way but if he only got one third of the angelic host, then that means God has double the angels. And it also means mm-hmm. that the devil has a finite number of warriors mm-hmm. on his side. So he's actually rather limited. Uh, and so if if you're tactical uh, and you're thinking like the enemy, you're going to recognize that he can only put his resources where there is the greatest threat. And if he sees any man pop his head up out of the foxhole, he is going after him. And he is going after any guy who is going to stand up and attempt to move in the direction of the kingdom. It becomes a great Mm -hmm. threat to him. So yes, there is. every human has problems and challenges and difficulties, Mm -hmm. just like every garden has weeds. A Christian has bonus. A Christian man, bonus, bonus. And so it's Mm -hmm. because of what he represents. He represents a headship of Christ, and it's very, very significant in how it plays a role in a family, how it plays a role in the church. And so as a result, if the enemy can take that out, he has uh, gained great ground uh, over the church of Jesus Christ, which is why we recognize the significance of it. We fight for it. We pray for it. We wrestle for yes. it. We encourage it. And we recognize that this is where God puts his grace as well. It's a significant thing. When a man is strong, a woman has that room, that canopy under which to grow in great strength as well. When a man is weak, it puts a lot of weight that on a woman to carry weights that she wasn't actually supposed to be carrying. It's sort of the Deborah effect. I don't think that Deborah was supposed to be in that situation, but when the other judges are falling to pieces and the men are, falling, are flailing about, then we need a Deborah to rise up. But it's an extra weight that wasn't intended. And so, mm-hmm. dear Lord, bring us back the men.
0: Mm, amen. Amen. And I think that there is a distortion of understanding amongst many people, especially in our culture, of what manhood and masculinity actually is. It's like almost focusing on all of the things that make a man weak and thinking that that is what masculinity is. You know, you hear people talk about toxic masculinity and they think of abuse, arrogance, uh, unhealthy or manipulative dominance, those kinds of things. But that's not actually what God created manhood, masculinity to be. That is Weakness there instead of true strength in manhood. So, anything can become toxic when it's riddled and marred by sin. But what does it actually mean to be a godly like that? What you say in your website, godly gritty masculinity. Like, Mm -hmm. what is the true picture of that? Like, how can you bring it back to what is actually good?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I. I have a certain phrase that I'll oftentimes use, uh, and it's the first sufferer. And I think that embodies uh, manhood very, very well. And the purpose mm. of manhood, the calling of manhood, the design, the makeup of manhood. It also shows Jesus. And one of the – it doesn't mean that femininity doesn't show Jesus. It does. It shows different attributes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a man is different is meant to showcase the first sufferer dimension of Christ, which is is the chief attribute of God Almighty. It's a symbol of love exemplified in and through a man. And that would mean if there is something weak, the man recognizes his responsibility as a stronger vessel to actually step up and give up his strength so that the weak can be made strong. And so a first sufferer is, let's just imagine a bullet is flying across the room and there's an orphan or a widow or someone that's weak. The man is actually designed to step in front and take the bullet. And this is actually part of the makeup of a man is to be built strong so that he can be poured out. So in a sense, he's the first to serve. If there is a situation where service is needed, he doesn't wait for someone to serve him but he is actually the first one to engage in the situation and to bend his knee and to wash the feet. He is the first to sacrifice. So that means if there is a shortage of material goods, of food or whatever, maybe even of a coat, and he would give up his coat, he would give up uh, his food, he would give up his resources, and he would be the first to sacrifice so that others would be made strong he would also be the first to suffer, which is the taking the bullet. So if someone's going to be on the cross, he's going to step in front and he's going to say, no, allow me. In other words, if someone's going to suffer, the man says, let it be me. And so what we see in Jesus Christ is the manifestation of this in the most perfect sense. All of the rest of us are <laughs> definitely small in in walking in these massive shoes, but this is what we're designed for when the Holy Spirit moves into the vessel of a man. This is what he is training us for. He's training us to see the needs of others and to give up our strength so that they could be made strong, to give up our resource so that they could be supplied for, to give up our preeminence or our pompous positions and take the low position and to serve the weakest in the room. And that is, it's a, it's a simple enunciation, but a profound one of the picture of what a man is designed to do. A man isn't designed just to grow old and gray. He's designed actually to spill out his life. A man is made strong to be poured out. And so uh, I, I just love the picture and it's very inspiring to my soul personally.
0: Hey friends, we'll dive back into our conversation in just a minute, but first I have to tell you about our sponsor for today. As some of you might know, I wrote my first book and landed my first publishing contract when I was 18 years old. The revolution was a huge part of my writing journey, but what's more, the help and the guidance that I received from writing experts like our very own Brett Harris or Jaquel Crow Ferris was even more influential. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the Author Conservatory because it's a program designed to give you the help and the guidance that I received, but better. The Author Conservatory is a college alternative program focused on advanced writing craft and entrepreneurship to help you learn the writing and business skills you need to get published and support yourself financially all from the comfort of your own home. There are both fiction and nonfiction tracks, so it's specifically tailored to what you are passionate about communicating. If you're a young writer who wants to grow in your writing skills and learn what it takes to be a published author, you need to check out the Author Conservatory. Head over to AuthorConservatory.com to find out all the details and to request a free consultation. Again, that is AuthorConservatory.com. Wow. God's design is so amazing. And hearing you talk about that, it just reiterates how beautiful and how perfect his design is. And so can we talk a little bit about like God's design for how he created men and women to be different? Like why did God create men to have certain responsibilities, and women to have other roles and responsibilities. There is such a... We push back against that and think that men and women are completely the same. They do everything the same. They can do everything the same. But that's not true. We know that God created us differently. So how did he do that? And how does sin like seek to distort that?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the idea of, of gender, which is obviously a God idea to start with, uh, is profound when you understand what sexuality reveals, that it reveals the Mm. kingdom of heaven. Even marriage itself and two coming together is showcasing Christ as a bridegroom being married to us, the believer, as his bride. And so there's something about sexuality that God has decided, chosen to utilize as a key revelatory device. And when I teach men about their sexuality, it it is so utterly profound how the roles work and how it showcases in so many regards. And I I can't go into that and some of it would just be inappropriate for me to go into, but it is profound. The deeper you look, the more you recognize that sexuality in its very essence and the distinctions of sexuality. For instance, a man is an initiator uh, and a woman is a responder. And that's in, in... in the sexual sense, that is actually how it works. Right. But God does mm-hmm. the choosing and man does the responding. And so this whole idea reveals the kingdom of heaven when you take a step back and you begin to see it, of course, that's what Paul the Apostle is going to say over and over and over again. He is going to use this picture of marriage, and he's he's basically going to say, hey, I know you think I'm talking about you know uh, human sexuality or, or man, men and women being married, but actually I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven here. And that's, in a sense, the same answer to your question. There's the reason that God designed us this way, and that is to reveal the kingdom of heaven. The reason he gives us roles, and he gave us certain strengths that if we employ them and we don't argue the way God designed us, then it actually brings about a clearer picture of the unseen realm. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that Israel is going to be, of course, a picture of the kingdom of heaven in a certain way. It's going to be a prophetic kingdom showing the, the Messiah who's going to come, but it's also giving us so much insight into even the answer to that question. For instance, you have... In the the societal structure, the governmental structure, you have kings and you have priests. And the king has certain responsibilities over the nation as sort of a head of the nation, but the priest is a keeper of the home or the temple. And so what you Mm -hmm. see is not a diminishment of one over the other. It's not that the king is more important or the priests are more important. They actually need to work together. And that's what leads Mm -hmm. to a healthy culture, a healthy reflection of the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting because to call the, the Levites the keepers of the home," I, I mean it just sounds terrible uh, and, and yet, back in that time, there was nothing negative about it. It was the honor, it was the privilege that the Levites didn't get land. they actually got this ministry that was it was entrusted to them as an opportunity that they got to care for the house of God. And I think it's interesting because when we lose the clear picture of how we are revealing. The kingdom of heaven and the high calling the Levites had, we also oftentimes lose the high calling of femininity. And so we have a tendency to fight in the gender sense and, you know, put down one to bring up the other instead of recognizing that if we just go along with what God's telling us to do, it actually causes us to thrive. But when we argue it and culturally try and put on these glasses to look at it, it comes out sideways and oblong, and we don't oftentimes appreciate what God is doing in giving us an assignment. And ironically, all of us are called the bride of Christ. And that's the other funny thing, if you were to look at it in the big picture, is that Christ is the head, and we are all to submit to him in the same sense that we are going to reveal it in a marriage on this earth. And so all of us need to practice being dependent upon our God and being keepers of the home, because we all have an individual temple. But then we also are caring for what's known as the church. And we're also caring for things known as houses and homes and families. And so when we follow God's prescription for that, we thrive. When we fight against it, we die. It's, so it's a, it's a simple rule of thumb for all aspects of life.
0: I love how you brought out that it is through following God's design that we thrive. It is so true that when we push against what he has created, we are really working against ourselves because we all have a desire for really what God has intended, you know, for marriage is meant to be a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. And we almost innately desire the intimacy and the unity that marriage can bring, but we push against everything that God put in place that can lead to those things. And it's just, it's just such a uh, <laughs> sin warped perspective. But I love that you brought out that mm-hmm. by coming back, to God's design, we're coming back to what leads us to be able to thrive in in those roles. Um, And you touched briefly on the topic of sexuality, and I think culture really exploits men and sexuality. You think of pornography and how that just destroys a biblical view of sexuality. So much of media is saturated with unbiblical views of sexuality in manhood. So, just briefly, could you touch on what a biblical view of sexuality is and how men can really grab hold of that and live that out as the ones who really are to lead in this area?
1: Yeah, there's uh there's a significant there's a sacredness to this uh this makeup that we have uh of our sexuality and it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I think you and I have both had a front row seat to recognize the breakdown of uh, the curdling of opinion, even in our Christian culture towards something known mm. as purity. Yes. And yet purity is yes. not just, you know, some virtue that we try and cultivate down here. It's, it's heaven. <laughs> it's the behavior of heaven, which basically mm-hmm. means unmixed. And so as a result, well, we don't try and live a Christian life, which is both spirit-led and flesh-led. We choose between the two and we say, Lord, I want to walk with you, which means I'm going to negate the flesh side of me by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I'm going to say no to this dimension, which is craving self-satisfaction. And I'm going to cultivate this spirit dimension of my life, which is going to be aimed towards selflessness. It's going to be aimed towards service, towards love, towards kindness, towards thinking of others higher than myself. And when you lose that attribute to our makeup as sexual beings, you you begin to see the immediate breakdown, not just of manhood and, and femininity, but of marriage. Because if you take a self vantage point into marriage and you never allow that what I'm calling purity, which of course gets Immediately uh, tagged as, uh, you know, some kind of abstinence mm-hmm. commitment or you know uh, purity pep talk or courtship, when in actuality. Purity is mainly just being set apart for God's agenda and purpose, and saying, I don't want to be ruled by the world and influenced by the world and my decisions in my lifestyle. I want to be influenced by the Spirit of God and His kingdom. So, Lord, here I am. If so, in my thought life, Mm -hmm. in my behavior, in my speech, I want to be set apart to resemble you, to reveal you. And I can only do that via the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. So, this vessel is set apart. And the result is something that we call purity. And yet that term, as we both know, has fallen under great attack mm-hmm. uh, because it's come to mean legalism as opposed to a, a intimate right. walk with Christ that is desiring to just seek him and to heed his Holy Spirit's movements. But that, that that aspect of seeking someone else's wealth or seeking someone else's benefit instead of our own is the basis of what makes marriage great. It's, it's what makes mm-hmm. the church function. It's what makes family work. It's what makes a culture change because the church is ministering this love so powerfully. And that starts in this thing called sexuality. And because I, as a man, I have attraction, God designed me to have attraction to a woman and to women, if you will. And so how I handle that becomes very, very important because if I allow the flesh to rule, then it's going to be my cravings that control my thoughts, that control my actions. And mm-hmm. that's going to destroy my life and destroy my marriage and my family and ultimately the church if it you know, continues to crescendo and, and ebb forth like that. However, if I stop it at the very basis and I say, okay, Lord, start with me. And I say, my thought life, Mm. I want to think on things above. I want to think on things that are noble, that are true, that are pure, that are lovely, that are of good report. I want my life to be fixed on what you are focused on. And when an individual life does that, and then they come together with another life that is doing that, you have something known as heaven come to earth in marriage. It is truly a Mm. picture of heaven on earth, and it's amazing. And so when people mock this basic movement It begins to distort the entire idea of sexuality. God's idea of sexuality is good. He actually designed it to reveal his kingdom. And yet it must be hosted and governed and... Uh, superintended by the spirit of God and not by our own instincts, wills, desires, cravings. And so it starts right at the very core of who we are to say, I am here for something higher than my own desires and my own, because it is your desire. If someone said I was born this way, they would be correct. It's not that they weren't born Mm -hmm. this way. It's that they were born in sin, needing to be set free so that they could showcase in and through their life, their sexuality their marriage, their family, their church, the truth of the kingdom of heaven. And that starts by denying oneself, picking up our cross and following him and setting our sexuality under his governance and saying, God, I trust that you know what you designed this for. You gave me a desire for the opposite sex, a desire to to be found attractive, a desire to to enter into a covenant relationship and a love relationship with someone else. Lord, I want you to lead in that. So begin to change Mm -hmm. me so that I can share your love with someone else in that
0: Mm. way. I really appreciate that you tied that to selflessness because I have noticed so much just in my own observations of the way most people go about dating and relationships and sexuality is that there is a priority pyramid in our culture where self is, of course, placed at the very top. And really that encompasses every aspect, every way that we make decisions. It's how can this meet my needs? How can this fulfill my desires? What can this do for me? And we approach relationships and sexuality in that way. But God's design really inverts that where we place God at the top. We seek, how can I honor and glorify and exalt Jesus Christ? How can I be obedient to what God has said in his word regarding these things? And then it places the other person second. How can I love, serve, and care for this other image bearer of God? How can I honor them? How can I point them to Christ? And so it's it's a completely different perspective of approaching relationships instead of the me, myself, and I approach that. the culture says it's placing God first and then the other person. And that's that's such an important mm-hmm. thing to keep in mind. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: And um, kind of along that line, I, I love all of your books, like I said, on relationships and marriage. And as we already said, Godly men are so needed. For, we, for us to have God-glorifying relationships, marriages, homes, children, churches, that's a ton of responsibility. So can you walk us through some of that responsibility that men are given in the arena of relationships, marriage, home, and family? What does that
1: look like? Yeah. Uh, Jeremiah 5.1 says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in our open places if you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes justice, who seeks the truth, then I will pardon her. In other words, there is something about a man who stands in the gap. He stands on behalf of. And it's a key role that we have, which of course is the first sufferer. Jesus stood on behalf of us. And that priestly notion of of a man. Uh, And to stand when something is unpopular... To stand when something is wrong, to stand when the, when the weak are being harmed is very risky, and yet a man is designed to do exactly that. He's designed to do it in his own soul, in his own thought life, with his own words. He's designed to do it for his wife. He's designed designed to do it for his kids. He's designed to do it for his church body. He's designed to do it for the weak, the the orphan, the widow in his culture. He's designed to do it for truth. But if he Mm -hmm. does something, social ridicule, mockery and disdain, loss of popularity, loss of position, loss of career loss of legal protection, loss of freedom, loss of health, loss of dignity, loss of future, loss of life can follow. Mm. So you can just imagine what a man is designed for is to stand when it's unpopular, to stand when it may cost him his life. And to lay down his life is the great art form of the man. It's like, what are we designed for? What did Jesus come for? To give up his life. What are we as men designed to do? To lay down our lives so that... Jesus wins, so that Jesus is seen, so that mm-hmm. our, our families are protected, our marriages are secured. This is what a man has always been designed for. And so, you know, you see Isaiah 59, 14, it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. When a man hears that, he's supposed to say, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? because justice cannot be turned backwards. Righteousness cannot stand afar off. Truth cannot fall in the streets. Equity must enter the situation, must enter our culture, must enter our marriages, our families, our churches. And so a man is designed to say, Lord Jesus, use me, even if it costs me my life. It's interesting because Paul is going to use a a term, a Greek term, in the New Testament. He's going to exhort the church at Corinth to endrizomai. That's the Greek word for it. It's translated oftentimes as quit yourselves like men or be manful. It's an interesting mm-hmm. statement because he's charging the whole church to behave as men. But there's a way that a man has historically been understood to behave. And it's what I'm just describing. It's to stand when everyone sits. But there's a yeah. that word, endrizomai, comes from an ancient Greek word Andrea. And that Andrea, if you study it like in ancient Greece, uh, it's very interesting because how it depicts amongst the culture amongst the men is very distinctive. It's usually associated with war. There's a one poet that wrote this. I'll just read it. Be brave, my heart. Plant your feet and square your shoulders to the enemy. Meet him among the man-killing spears. Hold your ground. In victory, do not brag. In defeat, do not weep. And that was the definition of Andrea which was to be brave to plant your feet and square your shoulders to meet the enemy and i think what you feel sarah when you say where are the men it's that Mm -hmm. That you want someone who's going to stand up for truth in this hour, stand up for, for purity, to not just give way to their own selfish desires, but to stand against them, to stand for the truth and against the enemy in their own soul, in their own heart, in their own mind, and then for all the other things that play out of that. For victory is gained when men stand strong, and it is lost when men sit, when good men do nothing the enemy overwhelms a culture. And right now, I would say for the most part, we feel, whether it's true or not, we feel as the church that good men are not doing very much right now. And so that's the craving that we have is that the men of our generation would be brave and would plant their feet and square their shoulders to meet the enemy. Yes. That they would rise up to defend the honor of Jesus Christ, the work of his cross, that he gave everything for us. The least we could do is rise up and give our everything for him. And when you see men hear that sort of charge, it's interesting because that's what we need. We as men just need to hear it. We need to have it reverberate in our soul because we are designed to do this. We're just not told that anymore we're not told that we're being built and designed by the spirit of god to lay down our life. We're being taught by our culture to hold our life at all costs, to not let it slip away, to to do whatever we can to preserve our comforts instead of spend our resource so that others could live. It's a paradigm shift that is very much
2: needed.
0: Mm, amen. And I can only imagine that the young men who are listening right now that is inspiring them and really getting them excited and pumped up to do that, but what I don't want to have happen here is that this is just an inspirational pep talk and then a week from now it's forgotten and they don't actually implement living it out, walking it out. So what practical things would you encourage The young men in our audience to actually seek to do like daily, like what habits, what practical ways can they grow into becoming that kind of godly man and just prepare to, you know, whether they are too young to even think about marriage or whether they're in a relationship or already married, how can they prepare? How can they grow right now?
1: That's a great question. I mean, the answer to that question is called discipleship. So it's, it's a big, big answer. Everything I do here at Ellerslie is the answer to that question. But that's a, that is the question. What do you do? So it's not just inspirational, but is very practical and moves your life in a direction. Part of that is a decision of the will to say, I am mm-hmm. not going to let this slip away. I'm going to cherish this truth and this movement of the Spirit of God in my life. Yes. And I'm going to plant my feet on practical uh, action. And so yes. you know for me, it's how I wake up in the morning that defines everything in the rest of my day, which then of course is going to define the next days up ahead. But mm-hmm. it, I when I resolve the night before to get up in the morning to meet Jesus and to start yes. my day with a focus on truth, then I have no excuses. There's no such a thing as as a snooze button for Eric Ludy. Because if I decide ahead of time, I can't negotiate with my tired self of which what's the best decision early in the morning. I need to make that decision before the morning. So how I wake up, I wake up very specifically, and this is one of the great secrets of my life, and I guarantee anyone who adopts this, it would be a great secret of their life. That is, I wake up happy. I wake up expectant. I, stick, I, when, when, when my, I, have, I have a watch that goes uh, and wakes me up, but I set my feet on the floor quickly. And I move my body quickly without negotiating with my tiredness and saying, oh, how do I feel? Do I really want to get up? No, that has nothing. That's not even a question. I get up and I get up happy. I I pump my fist into the air and I rejoice first thing in the morning. This is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then I rehearse to myself as I'm walking to the bathroom, I rehearse to myself the gospel of Jesus Christ that I am crucified with Christ. That means my old man no longer rules. That my old man in this day that is before me will not be in control, but the spirit of God, Jesus Christ rules this life. And I am crucified with him. I'm buried with him. I'm now alive with him. And I'm seated with him in heavenly places and everything I need for life and godliness has been supplied to me. So what I'm doing, Sarah, is I'm, re- I'm rehearsing what is true to start out my day instead of listening to my grogginess and letting that define the mm. temper and the culture and the atmosphere of my day. And that, as far as a pattern, because I can't, I can't make someone follow Jesus. I can, Mm -hmm. I can inspire them and then I can give them practicals. Mm -hmm. But what that someone, that young man needs to do is activate the truth. They need to do it. They need to actually do the next thing that is in front of them. And if that means get out of bed tomorrow morning and meet Jesus, and then the next day, get out of bed and meet Jesus. And it might be that for a long stretch, but you continue to consistently go after Jesus. I guarantee you, you knock, he opens. You ask, he answers. And it's not always in our time, but he will do it. And our job is to, like Jacob in the dark of night at Peniel, grab a hold of God and not let go until the morning light breaks, until we see clearly Exactly how this works, we hold on to our God, knowing he is the only place on earth to find the solution.
0: Mm, wow. Wow. That is so inspiring to even me personally, uh, that w- really seeking seeking God, being intentional like that. I think there's so much intentionality there in that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis and starting out first thing in the morning, being intentional like that all throughout the day as well, that's, that's so inspiring. And I know it's something that we could all implement and really just be edified by. Um, So one, one last quick question, just for the young women in our audience, how can we help our brothers in Christ? How can we support them or encourage them or pray for them um, in their journey of becoming yeah. men who are conformed to Christ.
1: It's, it's amazing, but God designed a man to be very influenced by the words of a woman. And it could really bother us at times as men because we find ourselves very vulnerable uh, in that sense. If a woman mocks us, if she holds us in contempt, mm-hmm. uh, it really it can be a hard thing for us to overcome. But when a woman exhorts us and encourages us, when she sees our strengths Sometimes we as men can't even see our strengths, but a woman has been given something by God to know intrinsically what a man was designed for. And I don't know why God gave the map for great manhood to women instead of to men, but women oftentimes know exactly what a man ought to be and a man doesn't, which means the women were given that map for a reason. And that is to not nag, which is the misuse of that map, but to actually encourage and to pray for and to exhort and to challenge and to basically notice what a man is doing and encourage that, fan that into flame. Like I always say, when you mm-hmm. see, you know, talking to a, a sister of a brother, when they see her Their brother jump up and try and touch something high because every man wants to jump up and touch something higher. I don't know if (laughs) we don't or anything above us, but when you see him jump, just say something like, "Wow, you jump high!" And that that brother of yours will remember that statement. I don't want to say that for the rest of his life, but I I wouldn't put it past him. Because a man cherishes encouragement from a woman. I don't know why it has such power, but you could just imagine if encouragement has that much power, how much would discouragement too? And so as a result, Mm -hmm. I think to look and to examine and to study the men around you, starting with your brothers and your dad, and just find ways to bring encouragement, write notes of encouragement, but sponsor that honorable life. And be Mm. rescuable too. In other words, to allow them to help you is another way. A man feels so satisfied when he feels like he can actually rescue and help someone. And so be rescuable. In other words, allow him to help you, whether that's opening the door for you or something even more grand. Uh, But to be rescuable is an art form that I think many women have lost, which then Mm. disables the man from being able to function in that role of laying down his life. And laying down your life doesn't mean actually always dying. It means laying down your comforts, laying down your ease and and spending your strength so that someone else can be benefited.
0: Mm, I love that so much. And that is such a word of encouragement to me as a young woman to know how I can do that for the men in my life. And I know it will be for the other uh, young women listening as well. So thank you for that encouragement. And... I feel like I could ask you a million more questions, but I know our time is already over. Um, But Eric, thank you so much for all of the advice, the wisdom, the biblical truth that you shared with us today. It's been such a blessing and an encouragement to my own heart, and I know it will be to everyone listening as well. So thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being a voice for truth and to have an exhortation encouragement to the body of Christ. You're doing a great
0: work. Mm, Well, thank you. And I appreciate your work in ministry as well. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Do Hard Things with Revolution. I hope it was encouraging and insightful to you. If you enjoyed this episode, Be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss any of our content and to leave us a review. Reviews truly make all the difference in helping us to get this content into the hands of more people. And don't forget that we want to answer your questions on the show. So do you have a question about doing life as a Christian teen, faith, theology, culture, or relationships? You name it, we want to talk about it. So head over to therevolution.com backslash podcast and submit your question in the form there and we may just be able to answer it on the show. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Do Hard Things with the Revolution and we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Hey, this is Brett Harris, author of Do Hard Things and founder of The Revolution. Are you a Christian student who loves writing, but think it could never go anywhere because you've been told young people can't get published and writers don't make any money? Well, you've been told wrong. I published my first book as a teenager and have sold around 700,000 copies of my books over the course of my writing career. Over the last decade, I've served as a mentor and coach to many of the world's top young writers and authors, including people you might know like Sarah Barrett and Jacquel Crowe. If writing is your passion, I'd love to work with you as well through The Author Conservatory, a three-year college alternative for both fiction and nonfiction writers. Just visit www.authorconservatory.com to learn more and apply for a free consultation. That's www.authorconservatory.com.